0: Well, if you were here last week, then you know that we're taking three weeks to breathe in the pure air of a simple gospel so that we can breathe out the pure air of a simple gospel to personally inhale the good news of Jesus Christ so that we will actually publicly exhale the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, most of us are not comfortable sharing... Our faith, And one of the reasons is that the gospel message can seem so complex that we're not even sure what to share. And honestly, sometimes we're not even sure exactly how to live. We'll come back to that to that thought um, a little bit later. But I think that's what Paul was writing to the Corinthians for. He wrote a couple of letters to the Corinthians. And a lot of what he wrote was out of concern for them. In 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 3, it says, But I am afraid that... As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and from the purity or the devotion to Christ. That your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In other words, the simplicity and purity of the gospel. But not just The gospel that is heard. A gospel that is lived. Not just hearing it, but living it as well. Devotion to Christ. And the gospel message in its simplest form is this. God has provided a way of salvation for man. Through His Son, Jesus Christ. And last week I told you what we're doing over the next three weeks. Is looking at the three main components of the gospel. Which is God, man... And Jesus, because God has provided a way of salvation for man through his son, Jesus. Now, what we left off with last week was this. What you believe about God will probably determine what you are willing to believe about his son. What you believe about God will probably determine what you are willing to believe about his son. For example, if you do not believe that God is great... And last week we talked about what that means. He's he's amazing. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's uh, everything. Um, all powerful. All knowing. If you don't believe that, you may not be able to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. When I say the person of Jesus Christ, what I'm saying is who he is. Think about the things that we know and have been taught over the years that Jesus is. We know that he is. Is God. Jesus is God. Isaiah 9. uh, Isaiah 7. Matthew 1. um, Isaiah 40. John 1. There's tons of scriptures that tell us Jesus is God. Uh, The scripture tells us that he is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Already we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, Jesus is God and he's the son of God? I mean, already we could be thrown off if we don't believe that God is great. Um, The word says that he is sent From God as a man. That he came from heaven, humbled himself, and became a man. Okay, so you're telling me Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. And he is a man. Yeah, not only is he a man, he was born of a virgin. Whoa, 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 whoa. And see, you can see how if you don't believe that God is great and sovereign and all-powerful and could do all these things, then you may not believe in the person of Jesus Christ. You may not believe that his death really brings us life you may not believe that his blood makes us clean from all of our sin from all unrighteousness and just like that if you don't believe that god is good you may not be able to believe in the work of jesus christ in other words what he did scripture tells us that he lived perfect he died innocent and he was raised victorious. And there's a lot of blanks to fill in. I, I understand that. There's a lot of things under those three things. But if you were to narrow it down and you were looking for a simple gospel, a simple pointing to the work of Jesus, he lived perfect. In other words, he was without sin. He died innocent. The gruesomely, he gruesomely shed his blood for our sin. It was our sin, not his sin, that nailed him to the cross. He died innocent. There was no sin in him. And we know that he was raised victorious. Death, uh, death could not hold him down. And he did all of these things because of a deep love and devotion to God. And he did it because of a deep love and devotion to us, to man. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think the joy set before him, like we talked about last week, was his love and devotion to God, but also his love and devotion to man. Now, thinking about that, the the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ, how many people really believe this stuff? Maybe a better question is how many people are really reaping the benefits of believing all of this stuff? How many people are really reaping the benefits of believing in Jesus Christ? You know, there's a lot of Christians. I don't know if you know this or not. But there are a lot of Christians who do not believe some of these things that we just said. About the person and or the work of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this this week. You know, for some, Christ is nothing more than a cosigner on a personal loan. Let me say that again. For some people, for some Christians, Christ is nothing more than a cosigner on a personal loan. You guys know what a a co-signer is? Have you ever had a a loan taken out? Maybe maybe you bought a house or a vehicle and you didn't have credit. I know my first truck that I had to buy, I had to have my dad co-sign it. Uh, I had a job and I made money, but I didn't have any credit. And so to prove to the bank that this debt was going to be able to be paid off, I had to have my dad, who was much more established and had a job for years and money and all that, he had to co-sign on my loan that if Tony didn't pay this thing off, Dad would come through for him, you know? And so for some, that is what Jesus is like in their spiritual life. You know, yeah, Jesus' name's on the contract, but I'm really the one working to pay that thing off. Listen, let me tell you something. Jesus has not co-signed on our debt. (laughs) Jesus is not a co-signer on our debt. The truth is, Scripture tells us that Jesus has paid our debt off. He's not a cosigner that it it goes to him if we're not able to do it. No, listen, he is the only one who can do it. Jesus has paid off our debt. The debt of sin and death has been paid by Jesus. The work, the person and work of Jesus has paid off our debt. Look at Colossians 2 with me. Colossians 2, we'll read verse 8 through 15. And uh, I'm actually, I teach out of the NASB, but I'm going to read this out of the new international version, the NIV. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition. Now, this is kind of the same vein as what we were reading in 2 Corinthians 11. It's what we talked about last week. Hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition. Last week, go check out the podcast. Last week we talked quite a bit about religion and how religion is not our gauge of righteousness. How well we are operating in our religion. That is not our gauge. The gospel is our gauge. The gospel is our plumb line, not religion. And he says, in the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ." Then he says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This is, again, this is the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That he is God. He's the son of God. Uh, All of these things that we know about him. Look at verse 10. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Now, here's that life we were talking about, that devotion to Christ we were talking about in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. um, That we are hearing, not only hearing it, but we are doing it. We are living it. The fullness of Christ. The fullness of the gospel in our life. It says, He is the head over every power and authority. In Him, verse 11, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands please get this you were you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands now we know what we know what circumcision is it's a cutting of the flesh of the foreskin on a man okay so what he is saying is there is a circumcision That hasn't been performed by human hands. He's not talking about a physical circumcision at this point. Not a physical cutting of the flesh. But a spiritual cutting of the flesh. That can only be performed by hands that are not ours. But God's. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision. Not performed by human hands. He says your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off. When you were circumcised. By Christ. Jesus Christ came and he cut. uh, There was a cutting of the flesh. Of our heart. That sin. Was cut away from us. We have the ability to not sin. Why? Because he has circumcised our heart. Verse 12 says. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised. With him through your faith. In the working of God. Who raised him from the dead raised him through your own faith. We have been buried with him. We know what baptism is. Baptism, whenever I am brought under that water, I am saying I am, I am um, dying to myself just as Christ died. I am dying to myself, to my flesh. And when I come up out of this water, it is, it is uh, the same thing as Christ coming up out of the grave. I am rising up a new person alive in Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins. Remember what he says in verse 12. Who raised him from the dead. We too are raised from the dead. When you were dead in your sins. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, before Christ circumcised your heart. He says God made you alive with Christ. When you were dead, while you were still dead in your sins. And while you were still all fleshly, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Look at verse 14, and this is the kicker. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decree against us. In other words, sin. Canceled out the certificate of debt of sin which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities. It says he actually made a public spectacle of them. (laughs) I love that. And then it says triumphing over them by the cross if you look at this, really the focus of this verse is this. It is the work of God's hand that brought victory over sin and death, not ours. Let me say that again. It is the work of God's hand that brought victory over sin and death, not ours. But for some reason, we can't keep our hands off of his work. We're still trying to get all up in his business. He has work that he has come to do. The person of Jesus Christ, God came, the son of God came and and made himself a, a man. Shed his blood, lived perfect, died gruesomely, raised victorious. That is his work. But for some reason, we try to get our hands in on his work. You even think about in Genesis. I don't know if you are familiar with this, but back in Genesis, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and uh, God had covered them, and um, He said, God said, "The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, because they ate from the from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." He said, "He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live." Forever, in other words, eternal life. Uh, The point is this. God knew that man has the propensity to reach out his hand and try to take eternal life for himself. So it says the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground. So even right there, God said, you know what? Uh, I have a different plan for redeeming you. You're not going to reach out your hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever That redemption, eternal life, redeeming you, reconciling you back to me is my work. It's the work of my hands, not your hands. Here's the work of your hands. You go work the ground. You know, there are victories that are won by our hands under God's favor. But victory over sin and death is not one of them. Please hear me. Victory over sin and death. Is not our job. It's not something that we can accomplish. Look at 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8, and uh, we'll go through 11. It says, and this is where, where uh, it's talking about David's mighty men. He has three of these mighty men that are just bad to the bone. It says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, chief of the captains. It says, he was called Adino the Esnite because of 800 slain by him at one time. And it says, after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about great victory that day. You see the picture that it just said? This guy is fighting so hard and so strong with his sword. His hand was weary. He says he clung to his sword. It's kind of like whenever you, you ever um, um, lifted weights and maybe you've done a bunch of sets or you're holding onto the bar or something. And when you let go of the bar, your hand is like, oh, like kind of hard to open back up. Or, or um, how many of you have been water skiing? Maybe you've been water skiing and you know that you're skiing around the lake and you're holding on to that rope as tight as you can. And, and it's a lot of work. It's a lot of pressure. And then whenever you finally let go of the rope, uh, your hand is like, ah! Oh. it kind of takes a minute for it to kind of come back, uh, back to its full you know, position or whatever. Well, this is kind of the same thing. It says he he uh, struck the Philistines so intensely until his hand was weary and clung to the swords like he was fighting so hard. That. He could, couldn't even hardly move his hand. But look what it says. It was his hands on the sword, his hand growing weary, his hand that was clinging to the sword. But it says, the Lord brought about a great victory. This is an example that there are victories that are won by our hands. And I want to show you the, the word for victory right here in the Hebrew. The word for victory here in the Hebrew is Teshua. Teshua. T-E-S-H-U-W apostrophe A H, Teshua. And what it means is salvation or deliverance, but it it indicates a salvation or deliverance by God through human efforts. Okay? This is a salvation or deliverance by God, a victory given by God, but through human efforts. In fact, look look at verse 11. Uh, We forgot to look at the third guy, the third mighty man of David. Now, after him was Shama, the son of Aji, the and It says, And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines. And look what it says. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, it says that Shama is the one that defended it. Shama is the one that struck the Philistines. But it says that the Lord brought about a great victory. Again, twice in this description of the mighty men, twice it uses this word, Teshua. Okay, now let's look at Psalm 20, verse 5. Psalm 20, verse 5. It says, We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Right here David is talking about a salvation and about a deliverance that comes both from God and through God. He's talking about a rescue that only God can provide. The word for victory right here in Psalm 20 verse 5 is not the word Teshua. It's the word and get this Yeshua we will sing for joy over your Yeshua. Yeshua. Yeshua means salvation or deliverance, just like Teshua means salvation or deliverance. But the difference is, this is literally the name of Jesus in Hebrew. This is the name of the Messiah. This is the name of the King of Kings, the Lord of the Lords. This is the name of the Savior of the world. In fact, Yeshua means salvation or deliverance. It means literally salvation of God is the translation of this word. God saves. God saves. We will sing for joy over the only one who can truly save. And you know what? Not only God saves. But part of the definition of Yeshua is welfare, uh, prosperity. Now, Obviously, when I say prosperity, I'm not talking about uh, that prominent doctrine out there of the prosperity gospel. I'm just talking about a God who, who is concerned for the welfare of his people. A God who wants to meet every need of his people. A God who wants to bring a security for his people. You know, earlier I asked the question: How many people are really reaping the benefits of believing in Yeshua? Well, you know what? We're not going to reap the benefits if we're trying to work in that uh, that Yeshua salvation or the deliverance. The work of our hands, our strength, doing things on my own steam versus relying on uh, the power of God in my life. You know, David is speaking in Psalm 20, verse 5. He's speaking prophetically of a greater victory, greater than the one he won out on the battlefield, a greater victory over a greater enemy through a greater king. You know, David is a king, and he understands battle. He understands victory. He understands defeat. And he's prophetically pointing to a greater battle, a a greater enemy, and a greater king who provides a greater salvation. And we need to begin to walk out a greater victory over a greater enemy through a greater king. Not through our efforts, not through Teshua, but through Yeshua. Not through Teshua, but Yeshua. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that there's a lot of people that are defeated before they even get out of bed. Because their mind is set on taking this day under their own strength. Trying to, trying to give their effort and hope that God shows a little bit of favor on it. A little bit of Teshua. Rather than saying, you know what, today there's a deliverance, there's a strength that comes both from God and through God. In fact, you know, I was thinking about the tail end of this verse in Psalm 20, verse 5. We will sing for joy over your victory. And then it says, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. To me, the banner points to the benefits Think about it. When, when, In war, when do you fly a banner or your flag? Think about the colonial days and think about the wars and, and think about that movie, The Patriot, and remember with Mel Gibson and all that. Think about the, the times where they would fly the banner. It's, they would fly it before war. They would fly it during war. They would fly it after war. Think about before war. You know, we fly a banner before war, to show who our sovereign is, and and where our help comes from, where our backing comes from. Psalm one twenty one. I look to the hills for where else does my my help come from? So before war, you know, think of think of um think of life like a like a war. And you know what? Sometimes it is. Sometimes life is difficult. Sometimes arrows and and swords and all kinds of stuff are coming at you from every angle. And you know what? Before my feet even hit the floor. Yeshua. Not Teshua, but Yeshua. Think about during war. You know, we fly banners to show our our confidence and our ability to persevere and hope. It does. It reminds me of that scene from the Patriot whenever that flag um, goes down there towards the end of the movie. The flag goes down and everybody starts retreating. And Mel Gibson comes and works his way and gets the flag and puts it up in the air and starts yelling and screaming. And everybody turns around, sees the flag flying again, and all of a sudden everybody's going back in the right direction. It's it's the same thing. In the midst of the war, while I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death, Yeshua, not Teshua, but Yeshua during war and then obviously after war you know there's banners that are flown after war why do we fly banner uh, banner after war to show that the victory is won and scripture tells us clearly in a spiritual sense for us as believers First Corinthians 15 uh, 57 the victory is won through Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, when my head hits the pillow at night, I can boast. The victory is won. And, and, and what I boast in is not Teshua, but it's yeshua, after war. The victory is won. And I know that. And I can fly this banner confidently before war, uh, during the war, after the war, um, all the time because the victory is won. And the victory is won because of Yeshua, because of the salvation and the deliverance that comes both from God and through God. I guess the question is, is what kind of what kind of salvation are you working in? Are you working in the Teshua a little bit of your effort, hopefully under the favor of God? Or is it Yeshua, a strength, a deliverance, a salvation that only comes from God and through God? And I guess another question is, is, is are you flying a banner? And if you are flying a banner, whose name is on that banner that you have raised? Is it your name or is it Jesus? Do you think that, that your efforts are going to win the battle? And, I'm, and specifically, you guys, I'm talking about that battle over, over sin and over death. Because we are talking about the gospel. And if there's one thing that Jesus has done, who he is and what he has done, he has brought us victory over sin and death. Are you struggling? Well, what, what kind of banner are you flying here? Whose name is on it? Yours or Yeshua's? I guess my encouragement today is for us to get a vision of a greater victory over a greater enemy through a greater king. And that vision being the victory is already won. To raise that banner. To walk in that victory. To walk in in the prosperity. Not, Not that's financial or those kinds of things, but faring well. Spiritually in life, walking in victory, walking securely in the salvation that God has provided rather than trying to strive. To create your own salvation or to create your own victories for your your hands to be worked um, to the bone. We need to get our hands off of his work. Amen.